1 Samuel 21. So when you're turning there, I'll invite Stephen to, Stephen Malcolm this time, <laughs> to come and read for us from 1 Samuel 21. First Samuel uh, chapter 21, verses 1 to 9. Then David came to Nob to Amalek, the priest, and Amalek came to meet David, trembling, and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? And David said to Amalek, the priest, The king has charged me with a matter and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with, and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then... What do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread. If the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest, Truly women have kept me being kept from us, as always when I go on the expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy, even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord, to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of of Saul's herdsmen. Then David said to Amalek, Then have you not here a spear or a sword at hand? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it, for there is none but that here. And David said, There is none like that. Give it to me. Thank you, Stephen. And remember again that though the grass withers and though the flower fades, that the word of our God remains forever. Let's go to the Lord in prayer again as we ask for his help as we consider this passage of Scripture. Lord, we come to you and Lord, we realize that your word is given by you, Lord, and is given that we might know you, the one true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent, Lord, that we might understand um, our own desperate plight in this world, Lord, as a fallen people, Lord, a rebellious people who are even conceived in sin, Lord, because of the effects of Adam's and Eve's um, disobedience against your word. And so, Lord, we realize that in, our, in and of ourselves, we, we cannot understand and perceive spiritual things, Lord. Left to ourselves, we are blind, without sight, we are, are deaf, without hearing. But we give you thanks that by your spirit, Lord, you do raise the dead and you give eyesight to the blind, hearing, Lord, to the deaf. And so we look to you now, even even though um, many have been brought already from death to life and given eyes to see, ears to hear, we know that, Lord, our, our hearing can still grow dull and our eyesight grow dim. We can become calloused by the things of this world. And so we pray for your help. Lord, to rightly understand what is, is being communicated here. How are we to interpret these events in the life of David? Lord, that you would give me uh, clarity in my speech. And Lord, just uh, unction in, in your Holy Spirit that might minister to your people. And that we might together feast at your table. Lord, that we might feast upon Christ who is the true bread. And so we ask your help now. In 
and we pray even for those that may not know you, Lord, may still be held sway to the, the prince of this world. We pray that there might be deliverance even this day of salvation in Christ's name. And we ask this all for Christ's sake. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, the title this morning may seem like a bit of a contradiction. I suppose the the passage here, it seems to warrant such a title. Um, A time for unlawful mercy. A time for unlawful mercy. And for us living in the West, we can really only imagine a situation where you're sitting down at the dinner table and suddenly there is at the door someone frantically pounding on your door and you get up from the table and you go out uh, to the the entrance and you open the door and there standing is uh, a Jewish family that is obviously upset. They're distressed and you ask what's going on and they say that, well, they've started arresting families without cause and they're running for their lives. Can you help them? And you decide to take them into your house, maybe hide them under the, the crawl space under a part of your house and try to you know, give them some food, make sure they have provisions and go back to the table. An hour later, the, the door is, is again uh, being pounded upon frantically and you get up, you go back to the door, open it and you have standing at the door officers who are looking for Jews who have ran away and they are coming to detain them, asking if you have seen any such Jews how do you answer in that situation? Do you, do you lie to them for the sake of this family? Um, we know that thousands of Christians throughout history have been faced with these sort of questions. And even in our text here this morning, we see for the, the priest at Nob, uh, for Amimelech, the, the priest, he's faced with this sort of dilemma. How is he to respond? And so the title And the issue we're looking at is a time for unlawful mercy. Uh, Obviously, in the context here, David is now officially on the run. Through Jonathan's test to Saul, it becomes painfully clear that Saul has no intention of sparing David's life. He is set on destroying him. He's set on killing him. He will hunt him down at his own home. Uh, He will go to any length to destroy David, the future prince, of Israel, And so, as David, uh, we saw last week, was helped by Jonathan in this covenant that they had established. And we saw a wonderful picture of this covenant faithfulness that God sets upon us, the steadfast love. David and Jonathan um, part ways. They are weeping. And uh, as was customary, we always find it strange when we find, uh, you know, this description of, of kissing farewell of course, in Middle Eastern culture, even today, it's not uncommon to greet with a kiss or to, to say farewell. And we know in the scriptures, um, even Peter would command Christians to greet one another with a holy kiss. And for us in you know, these Western nations, we don't, we don't do that. That's weird to us. Uh, so that, there's, nothing, there's nothing strange going on here in the, the context of their culture and of this time. Um, but they part ways, not sure if they'll ever see each other again. And David takes off running, um, but he needs provision. He has no food. He has no weapon for defense. 
I don't think he really even at this point has much of a plan as to what he's going to do. Uh, we'll see later he, he tries to go even into the land of the enemy, hoping for refuge there. And that, that plan fails and he has to go then into hiding into caves and such. So this is a, a difficult um, question and I've been praying and wrestling with it all week that the Lord would help me to to uh, represent it accurately, not to, to make implications that, that aren't biblical. Um, of course, even when we hear a phrase like unlawful mercy, it, it, it rightfully so makes us uneasy and, uh, and may at times raise many questions for us. But I think as Christians who live in a fallen world, there will be times when we're faced with this dilemma. It's not a situation that we ever want to find ourselves in, but I think it's good for us to think through this principle we find in Scripture. Is there a time and place for unlawful mercy? And if so, how do we begin to navigate through those questions? Um, I know even for us in Canada over the past several years, we were faced with questions we never dreamed that we would be faced with. Questions of when is it right to to disobey uh, your ruling governing authorities? When is it right to rat out your neighbor or to, to not do as we're told, right? And we, we've already got, I think, a small taste of this sort of dilemma. Nothing like many have faced uh, throughout history or even today in other parts of the world. But I think we begin to feel the, the tension here. So there's a number of unlawful things we see happening. Uh, of course, on the, on the very forefront, we have David coming to the priest... And to, to Amalek, and, and David's obviously lying to him. David's not up front with why he is there, and, uh, and, and, and he picks up that, uh, that something is going wrong, that something is off here. Because he asks David, why are you alone? Um, where, you know, what, what's happening? Why is no one with you in, uh, in verse 1 there? And we find that he comes out to meet David trembling. So Amalek is looking at the situation. He knows David. He knows probably something of the tension that's been happening in the king's court. I'm sure word got out that Saul is, is kind of losing his mind. He's a bit of a madman. And at one point he even tried to kill David. And, and now you have David showing up alone. He's unarmed. He has nobody with him presently. Though he says there are people he's going to meet. Which does seem to be the case. Um, Amalek picks up something is, is not right. And David uh, spins this story, which I guess we could say is, a, you know, in some ways a classic story we've seen before, where you're on a super secret mission for the government, and you can't tell anyone what you're doing, and, and where you're going, and, and, and this is how David presents the situation. So there's that, and then there's the priest who gives the unlawful bread to David. This was bread that, as we will see, was not to be given to just the average passerby. It was set apart unto God and the priests. And later in the account, we'll see even the king himself, his own commands will be undermined and disobeyed. And so we could summarize it by saying there is unlawful mercy that is taking place. Um, there was a, apparently a, a rabbinic principle called Kal Hamor, which the, the rabbis would use as a way of distinguishing between the light and the heavy. The laws that are light and the laws that are heavy. And when you have a situation where 
two laws seem to contradict or to, to butt up against one another, then this principle would be used in that you weigh the heavier of the matter, and that is the direction that you would take. And we actually see this principle. You can put your book, bookmark there in First uh, Samuel 21, and just turn with me for a moment to Matthew 12, because you'll probably recognize that this very incident in the life of David is actually picked up by Jesus. And so we have this, uh, one of these wonderful moments where we get a bit of commentary in the New Testament on the Old Testament. And I think Jesus gives us some, some tremendous insight here in how we are to make sense of what is going on. And so in Matthew 12, as Jesus had many times, he finds himself at odds with the religious leaders and their understanding of the Sabbath. And we find in Matthew 12, the disciples and Jesus, they were going through the grain fields. And his disciples being hungry, they began to pluck heads of grain and eat it. So you can imagine, it's getting close to harvest time. The fields are ripe and they're walking along. And they, they strip off a couple heads of, of wheat. And they, you know, maybe you've done this before. You kind of rub it in your hand and you're trying to get out the, the little kernel of grain and put it in your mouth and eat it. And the disciples are doing this. And we're told in verse 2, But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And Jesus said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would have not condemned the guiltless. <clears throat> For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And so Jesus defends his disciples' actions by pointing back to this situation where David, <clears throat> excuse me, approaches the temple the tabernacle that is at Nod, and Amalek there as the priest, gives him the bread that is not lawful. And you see, the bread was to go to the... Um, uh, <coughs> excuse me. Nathan, you want to get me some water? <laughs> thought I'd be all right today without it. But uh, my throat is dried up. Um, this, this bread was to be prepared um, on the Sabbath day, and the 12 loaves were put on the, the table of presents. And... Every Sabbath, there would be a new 12 loaves prepared. The old would be taken off and the new loaves put on the table. And the priests, once the loaves were taken off, were allowed to eat the bread. And it was a, a source of their nourishment. But it was restricted for the priests alone. And others were not supposed to eat it. And so Jesus is pointing out that David, coming there in this desperate situation ate the bread and he was not condemned for it, nor was Amalek the priest condemned for it, because he was demonstrating mercy and, and kindness. And Jesus says that mercy was actually more uh, weighty than the commandment to not eat the bread. And so we have this situation of what we could say is unlawful mercy. Um, there's one other... Um, I want to look just quickly at Matthew 22, where I think this same principle comes through. And I do believe it's, well, it's obviously the principle that's operating there in 1 Samuel, um, because Jesus 
points it out specifically. The other uh, potentially confusing thing that Jesus says there is that the priests profane the Sabbath. And what, you, what is Jesus talking about? How are the priests profaning, profaning the Sabbath? Well, this is a question that I know uh, has been brought up to me a few times too. As a, a minister of the gospel, uh, in many ways, the busiest day of the week, um, um, or the one where I maybe would, you know, many would say doing the most work, would be on Sundays, and yet how is that to be a day of rest? And I think that's the principle Jesus is pointing out in the Old Testament. The priests were extremely busy on the Sabbath days. They were, they were to be offering up these sacrifices, preparing the bread. They were to be taking the bread off. They were to be ministering to the people. And, and so in that sense, they weren't resting. But the principle of the mercy to which they are showing the people of God and, 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 and serving the people becomes the more of a weighty matter than that of the Sabbath. This is uh, what Jesus is saying. So another um, picture we see of this, Matthew 23, 23. Jesus here rebukes the Pharisees. It's a little, uh, obviously, different context, but he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. And there we see this again, principle of the weightier matters of the law. To neglect mercy in the name of keeping a tradition or a law is what Jesus is rebuking them for. And Jesus is not undermining the the law of God. And this is where the, the, the tension becomes so difficult for us. We have to sort through sometimes how to properly weigh one action against another in light of God's law. And there's not always a clear-cut answer as we may like it. But what sort of occasions might require unlawful mercy? Going back to 1 Samuel, as we think about this, what sort of situations might there be a time where there is a need for unlawful mercy? And I think, first of all, we see here in 1 Samuel... That when it comes to protecting innocent life, we see there is at times and in certain ways a requirement of lawful, unlawful mercy. Clearly David did, did, did nothing here to, to justify the, the anger and, and the wrath of Saul that would desire to take his very life. And it's not just David that is saying he is innocent. We know that Jonathan previously pointed out that David is, is without guilt. He does, he's done nothing to, to require um, death. He tried, Saul, Jonathan tried to convince Saul of David's innocence, that he's been a loyal and faithful servant. He has done nothing but what you've asked him. Why are you set against to destroy David? And we could appeal to the, the Psalms even that speak of, of David's own position before God. He had not sinned against Saul. He did not break a, a command that was punishable by death. And we find even the priest later when, he, when Saul confronts him for his kindness. Even Amalek the priest points out that David has been a faithful servant to Saul. And has done nothing to deserve death. And so in that sense the, the priest's act, actions were justified. He's protecting 
innocent life. And we don't know exactly David's motive in the lie that he told in the deception to Amalek. I mean, he could have come up and just told him, listen, I'm being hunted by Saul. My life is in danger. I have no provisions. Can you please help me? He could have just been completely upfront and honest with Amalek. Likely, David, uh, we know, recognized the, the, the henchman of Saul, one of Saul's loyal servants, this uh, Doeg, the Edomite. David recognized him there, probably knew this guy is going to betray me. He's going to turn me in. And maybe David even was trying to protect the priests, knowing that if they are aware of his situation and the priests help David, that would make them liable to to Saul's rage as well. And maybe he thought if he could keep the priests somewhat distant from the situation, they could actually tell Saul, we didn't actually know what was going on. We just thought we were helping one of your servants. David said he was on a mission to, to do your bidding. We thought we were helping you ultimately. And the priest could honestly say that, because he did not understand the situation. But nonetheless, David did lie. He was deceitful. And so in that sense, it was sinful. It was wrong. But if it's done also for the protection of life, we see this is where it becomes very uh, difficult to know exactly what the right course of action would have been. We see other examples of this in the scriptures. Um, One that came to mind was in Exodus 119. Um, don't have to turn there necessarily, but you'll remember the situation where the, the, uh, the king of Egypt told the, the Hebrew midwives to execute the children of, of the Hebrew women when they were there helping them give birth. And um, we read there in Exodus that the Hebrew women refused to do this because we're told in, uh, in Exodus one. And uh, 19, no, 17, but the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very strong And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. So on the one hand, we would look at that and say, okay, the midwives are obviously protecting innocent life. They're refusing to carry out the command of the king and execute the male children. But in the the account they give to Pharaoh, it's not truthful. We would say there's an element of of lie there. That's not why they they didn't kill them. They, They chose to willingly disobey the king. And so in order to protect innocent life, there is this unlawful mercy. And God rewards them in that sense. So it's a very, very uh, interesting and difficult tension here. And this was exactly the situation of Corey Ten Boon. I referenced the situation of having a Jewish family come to your door and deciding to hide them and then being approached by Nazi soldiers later looking for those Jews. And how many times would have Corey Ten Boon or her family had to, to, to lie right in the face of these soldiers looking for these families? Um, they were uh, a Dutch family. They were watchmakers and Corrie ten Boon it's believed that through the efforts of their family helped to save over a hundred Jewish lives from extermination during the Second World War and and we see that as a noble act of, of, of kindness and so that's a helpful picture John Gill uh, 
In his commentary, he said, Nothing stands in the way of preservation of life but idolatry, adultery, and murder. And, uh, and so obviously there would be a point at which we could not compromise. We could not act in an unlawful way. And this is where it becomes so difficult. We have to weigh these matters of the law. If someone says to deny Christ and to blaspheme Him, or I'm going to execute your family, obviously in that situation we would say, I cannot, I cannot blaspheme my Lord. Because that would be the weightier matter of the law. And so this takes discernment. It takes uh, prayer and counsel. But I think we should be careful to not assume we will never be put in such a situation. Um, Remember, uh, some of you saw recently here, John Barrows uh, recently passed away from prostate cancer. And John Barrows, if you know, spent... Over 20 years standing outside an abortion clinic, calling these people to repentance, not only those who were going into the abortion clinic, but also to the doctors and the nurses that were there in that place. He just gave his life to this ministry. And I had an opportunity actually to meet John at, um, when David and I went down to the Ligonier Conference, he was there and talked to him a bit about the situation in Canada. And I uh, was just you know, telling them that it's very difficult in Canada to even know where this is happening because a lot of our doctors who are delivering babies will also be the ones who abort the children and so don't have, in the same sense, always the same clinics. You might be in a room with expecting mothers and sitting beside you is a woman about to go get an abortion and you have no idea. Um, but I was also talking to him about the laws in Canada are so strict that if you get within a certain distance of an abortion clinic and protest in any way, you'll be immediately jailed. And uh, remember he looked at me and he said, well, maybe in Canada people are just going to have to go to jail. And I've thought about that. Are we willing to, to stand in the gap on behalf of innocent life, acting what would be deemed even unlawfully at times, speaking out against things that we are being told we can't speak out against, for the sake of mercy? These are difficult questions, but I think as Christians, we see that we live in a country that is continually tightening the grip around what we're allowed and not allowed to say. And we will have to decide. Me showing mercy and even speaking the truth, which is showing mercy, telling someone there's no such thing as gender dysphoria. This is a delusion. It is wicked. It is sinful. You need to repent. And that may land you in jail. And you have to decide, will I act according to the law of this land? Or will I show kindness and mercy in proclaiming the truth? And may God give us wisdom and courage in such a moment. I'm sure we even felt a sense of, you know, just going to to someone's place for dinner during the whole COVID madness. You felt like a criminal going to to your family's place at Christmas. We were breaking the law and, and, and we had to in those moments decide what is the weightier matter of God's law. And so we see there is a time in protecting innocent life, but also a time in providing for the needy. And and there's obviously David with a desperate need here. He is hungry. He does not have provisions of food. He does not have a weapon for self-defense. And so this is the basis on which Amalek helps David and shows mercy and kindness to him, giving him the bread that was otherwise forbidden. Um, This is really why Jesus constantly got into trouble. He was healing on the Sabbath over and over again. And actually, it would almost seem that David here is 
fleeing on a Sabbath, depending um, based on the way Jesus used the passage as dealing with a Sabbath issue. Um, also based on the fact that the bread, it seems from the account, has just been switched. So the fresh hot bread has been put on, which would take place on the Sabbath before the Lord. And so it seems that there is also a parallel there. But Jesus was constantly coming up against the religious leaders because he had touched something that they deemed unclean. He had had a meal with someone who they deemed to be a sinner. He had shown kindness to healing a man on a Sabbath and telling him to pick up his bed and go home. And they said, no, that's work. You can't do that. And, and they were so obsessed with the keeping of the letter of their traditions that they missed the call for mercy that is the weightier matter. Even for you children, you'll remember the um, story of the Good Samaritan, one of the classic stories where mercy is demonstrated Right, the, in, Luke, in Luke 10, 20, you had the, the priest and the Levite. They see the man who's been beaten, who's been stripped of his belongings and left for dead, but they don't want to touch him. They don't want to become unclean by this sinner and they pass by. But then the Samaritan comes along and he shows kindness and mercy and love to this man. And he has, Jesus said, loved his neighbor as we are called to love. He has understood the weightier matters of the law. He has provided for the needy. And this is so fascinating when you think about even the way Christ carried out his ministry. Every time he touched a leper, every time he touched uh, somebody who, even the, the woman with the, 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 the bleeding or the, the man who had, had maybe died and, and Jesus touches them and raises them to life. Every time he does that, he was really showing a sense of unlawful mercy in making himself unclean ceremonially, but also bringing life and grace to those whom he ministered to. And of course, for Amalek, this act of mercy would come at a tremendous cost for him. He didn't understand that at the moment. I don't think David understood either the repercussions of this kindness of simply giving David some bread, giving him Goliath's sword, who you could argue was rightfully David's. I mean, he was the one who slayed the giant, took the sword, very possibly put it in that tent himself. But if you look a little further down in 22, verse 6, we find Saul hears of this. And we see the tremendous cost um, to the priest, to his family, and to the town. In uh, verse 6, David gets wind of this and says in uh, verse 7, Hear now, people of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? That all of you have conspired against me. No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait, as at is this day. Then answered Doeg the Edomite, who stood by the servants of Saul, I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Amalek, the son of Atom. And he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. And then the king sent to summon Amalek, the priest, son of Ahitub, and all his father's house, the priests who were at Nob, and all of them came to the king. And Saul said, Hear now, son of Ahitub. And he answered, Here I am, my lord. 
And Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, in that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him, so that he has risen against me to lie in wait as this day? Then, then um, Amalek answered the king, And who among all your servants is so faithful as David? Who is the king's son-in-law and captain over your bodyguard and honored in your house? Is today the first time I've inquired of God for him? No, let not the king impute anything to this servant or to all the house of my father, for your servant has known nothing, has known, known nothing of all this, much or little. And the king said, You shall surely die, Amalek, you and all your father's house. And the king said to the guard who stood about him, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand also is with David. And they, they, knew, that their, um, and they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. Then the king said to Doeg, You turn and strike the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priests, and he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. And Nob, the city of the priests, he put to the sword, both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey, sheep, he put to the sword. But one of the sons of Amalek, the son of Ahitub, named Abathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. And David said to Abathar, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me. Do not be afraid, for he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me you shall be in safekeeping." And I don't think David or the priest or anyone there had any idea of the repercussions of this act of kindness and mercy shown to David, where Saul would come in in a rage and kill, slaughter all of these priests, and then go to the very town from where they were from and begin killing man, woman, child, and and even their animals would be put to the sword, we're told. And so when we find ourselves in situations of of standing upon convictions or showing kindness and mercy, though even our own government may say it's forbidden. We have to entrust ourselves to the Lord. We don't always know how this is going to play out. We could say on the one hand, it didn't look to play out well for Amalek. Seems maybe it was a foolish decision. But then we have to remember that this life is not the end. This is, in many ways, the, the training for what is coming in a new heavens and new earth. In a place where righteousness dwells. We think of the picture of the martyrs under the throne who are crying out, How long, O Lord, until we are vindicated upon the earth? And he says, Wait until the last of you has come in and they are given the white robes of righteousness. You see, we have to keep even the coming kingdom of Christ and all of its glory in perspective while Christ is reigning and we still find ourselves in this time of hostility against his reign. There is great suffering. There is great cost. But in the end, Paul says, it will be seen as light and momentary affliction. Now we may find it difficult to think about scenarios where us Providing for the needy may require unlawful mercy. Perhaps we are on our way to to church and somebody's broke down on the side of the road and you ask yourself, well, do I I stop? Do I 
make myself late for church and showing kindness to this person and being a good neighbor. Maybe some application there. You know, this past week I was uh, in town around lunch and a little boy ran up. He must have been 10 years old and he said, hey, can I help you do something? That's kind of strange. Asked him, well, what's going on? Are you okay? And he's like, well, no, I just... I just come at lunchtime and try to find some, some work so I can buy some food. And I'm thinking, this is Fairview. There can't be kids going around with no, no lunch here. And talked to him a little bit, about 10 years old, and said, yeah, he just you didn't get money that morning for lunch, and he didn't have any. And so we you know, went in and bought him a sandwich and invited uh, him to church, tried to talk to him a bit. And we realize there may be situations where we find someone in need and maybe we're busy, maybe we, we don't feel we have the resources to share. Maybe it's a day where we, you know, Sundays, our family, we generally try to avoid buying things needlessly, try to set it aside as a day of rest, and maybe that situation happens on a Sunday. Well, boy, with no lunch, what do you do? We can't give him a ride anywhere, that would be creepy, you know, you don't want to be the guy that picks up the kid. Come with me! Um, Go and buy him some lunch. Show mercy, though at times we may find it goes against our initial reaction. Maybe you're aware of a need around you and and you could meet that need, but you've also been saving money. You've been setting it aside and you realize that if I help, then it's going to be at a cost to me. It's going to be at a sacrifice to me to help this individual. Maybe it's the use of your time. There are so many ways where, where we... Uh, I think are called at times to to give and serve sacrificially for the needs of others around us. Even in China today, if you help or minister to the wrong people, you become blacklisted. You lose points on your social credit rating and you will be restricted from various parts of society. You may have your bank account frozen just because you associate with the wrong people. We've seen our own government take steps in that direction in those times, will we choose to show the mercy, to speak the truth, or will we be tempted to compromise? So I think there are times in providing for the needy, for those in desperate situations. But lastly, also, just quickly, when it comes to preventing <clears throat> wicked rulers... There can also be times of unlawful mercy or um, what we would say is unlawful obedience even. We saw the soldiers that came with Saul come to the priests and Saul is giving orders that they all be executed. He accuses them of treason essentially, that they've conspired against him with David and, and orders his men to put them to death. Now, the majority of the men with Saul refuse. They're, they're not willing to do this. They, they know this is wrong. You don't strike down the priests of God, even while they're wearing their priestly garments. But then, of course, he turns to Doeg, who's quite happy to follow up the king's command. And as Christians, there are times when we must stand in resistance to evil, to wickedness, Though it is considered illegal or unlawful, this again has been the pattern throughout church history. Um, Even in our own day, many face this difficult position. 
There must be a place for civil disobedience within the, the Christian worldview, within our understanding of, of what it means to be a faithful Christian. We must have a category of civil disobedience when governments begin acting in a way that's contrary to the law of God. When governments begin stepping into spheres of, of, of sovereignty that they don't have the right to do, begin dictating to the family how to carry out the instruction of their children or the discipline of their children or they begin dictating to the family what they are allowed to, to do and not do or dictating to the church how to worship, when to worship, who can worship. When governments begin stepping into these areas, there is a place for disobedience and resistance. Even as these men refused to carry out the order of Saul, now we could say, well, they should have went further and prevented Doeg from doing this. And I came across a quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who, of course, was a pastor during the Second World War and openly spoke out against the Nazis, against what Hitler was doing. He made the statement that we are not simply to bandage the wounds of victims beneath the wheels of injustice. We are to drive a spoke into the wheel itself. And there are times as Christians, as we look at governments carrying out injustice, victimizing people, that we are not called simply to stand by and say nothing, but actually to take action, to speak out, to, to help expose the evil that is happening, lest we take part in it. And if you've read Bonhoeffer's book, The Cost of Discipleship, you know he wrestled greatly with that question. How, how does a Christian behave in this situation? Is it right to lie? Is it right to even pursue the life of Hitler in that case? For the sake of the many. And he himself was part of a plot to assassinate Hitler. These are not easy questions for us to wrestle with. But I think they are categories we need to think about. We have to weigh them. We are to be informed by scripture. And cannot pretend that, that any ruler of this world has all power. All authority. And it's right for us to speak out against that. And in a, in a way that is consistent with God's word, to act. I know many of you have written letters to Premier, maybe to your MLA. Maybe you've signed a petition. Is there a time for a Christian protest? These are questions we have to wrestle with the weightier matters of God's law. And I know this can raise many uh, questions. And I hope it's not just <laughs> raising more questions than it's answering. Um, of course, there's abuses on this as well. We have to be very careful with these sort of principles. Couldn't help but think of the situation with, with Alistair Begg. I know many of you have been talking about it. And I listened to Alistair's sermon that he preached on a Sunday evening service, and he was more or less explaining why he gave the counsel he did for the grandmother to go to the transgender wedding or whatever it was. And, and really, this actually was his basic uh, argument. I think if you were to ask him, was that a way of showing unlawful mercy? He would say, yes, absolutely. That's what you're doing. You're, you're, you're compromising on the one hand in order to show mercy to this individual, to show love to them. And that was kind of how he was looking at it. Not necessarily saying that he thought the, the wedding was right or permissible. But you can see how quickly you take a principle like this and you, you take it too far. Or 
you look at these two aspects. On the one hand, I want to show mercy even to those in homosexuality or those who are, maybe it's someone who works at an abortion clinic and, and I'm called to love them and to, to show kindness to them. On the other hand, I don't want to compromise and we have to figure out what does this look like sometimes. But I think in the situation with, with Alistair, the attending of the transgender wedding would be a compromise in the very definition of marriage itself and in what God has said about it. And so that should have been the weightier matter of the law, whereas showing compassion in that situation would not have outweighed the need to uphold God's standard of marriage. And you see, so you, you are caught sometimes in situations where you have, you have this tension of, of wanting to show kindness and love to someone, but not wanting to compromise. And then you have to weigh in your mind and heart which is the most weighty, and whichever one you determine to be the most weighty then we'll determine how you move forward. And, and we have to be biblically minded. We have to be humble. We have to seek the counsel of our brothers and sisters. We need to, to clothe these things in prayer. I think there should be a place of, of fasting if you find yourself in such a situation. Be very careful because our hearts are so quick to justify our own sin, to justify compromise, the path of, of least resistance. Even something as silly as, as putting on a mask in the grocery store. I mean, you remember well the, the battle that's going on in your mind. Like, is it really worth the awkwardness of being confronted by the store worker or someone calling the police? Should I just, just do it even though I think this is useless? And if you thought it was helpful and you do it, then, then your conscience is clear before God. But you see the, the issue. You, you have to decide. Will I go against conscience? Will I... Go against what I believe is, is true in order to have an easier path to travel. May God keep us from that conclusion. And let us not lose the big picture here either. As we think about the situation with David. This isn't just about David, is it? I mean, we know many... Uh, Civilizations have always liked to reenact their great battles, their great victories, whether it's, you know, the Roman Empire and reenacting the great victories over the Goths or the, you know, Hannibal and his army, and they would reenact these things to remember them. Well, in many ways, God has actually pre-enacted his great victory. He has pre-enacted the great triumph of Christ at the cross. And in the life of David, I think we find one of the clearest pre-enactments of what Christ would do. And, and I think we know that because we have the Psalms. And as you read the Psalms, you realize they're not primarily about David. They're actually primarily about Christ, revealing the work of Christ, the character of Christ, revealing the sufferings of Christ. And so, in many ways, this story functions as a pre-enactment of the greater story in which David finds himself. It's not just about Saul hunting down David, the future king of Israel. This is the ancient battle, the serpent pursuing the offspring of the woman, the one who would come to crush his head. He hates him. He despises him. He, he chases after him with seething anger, destroying everything in its path. Beyond just David... There is this pursuit of the dragon after the child. And I just, uh, I know I'm 
going a little longer the last few weeks, but I just can't help but go for a moment to Revelation 12 because I think it, it gives us this picture. This is exactly what's unfolding. In Revelation 12, um, we're told John sees a great sign appear in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns on his heads, and seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of God and the authority of this Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they've conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath. Because he knows his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness. To the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from its mouth. And then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. Listen to what it says. On those who keep the commandments of God and hold fast to the testimony of Jesus. And, of course, it then continues as the dragon raises up the beast to war against the offspring. That is the story that has been unfolding since Genesis. And so this is what's, I think, happening ultimately is not just the hunt of David, but Saul as a man afflicted by evil spirits, a devil who knows through this line is coming a Messiah, is coming one who will crush the head. And he pursues this line time and time again. I mean, it's not ironic, uh, or it's not coincidence, That even as Saul would lay waste to the city of Nob, so Herod, in his pursuit of the Christ child, would go out and strike the the children, the, the sons of Bethlehem. In a pursuit and in rage of this child escaping. The parallels are so strong. But we are not to despair. For just as God preserved David and would give him finally victory over his enemy, Christ was preserved. Christ was kept from all of the assaults against him. And the Lord Jesus Christ won the decisive victory at the cross where the, devil, the devil's head was crushed 
And though now the serpent has a mortal wound, he is still flailing about, still pursuing the offspring, those who hold fast to the testimony of God. He is finished. And we overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. Even as Amalek loved not his life unto death, so Christians say, if you want to take my life, then take it. I will not renounce my Christ and my God. Because we realize that we have been taken from the kingdom of darkness. We've been brought out from the rule of the evil one. Brought into the kingdom of Christ. Made his servants. And called now to serve him faithfully. And we can extend mercy and grace to those in need those in desperate situations because of the grace and mercy that we have experienced from God. Even as we sing in the hymn, Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. We rejoice in what Christ has done. And we walk with confidence that he will certainly finish it. And we are called even as God would remind his people through Micah 6.8. He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. And we see in this account, how God certainly will vindicate his people and preserve them, even if that is a preservation through death into his own presence. So let's pray as we close there this morning, and we'll have a final song together. Lord in heaven, we, Lord, just uh, know that there are so many situations that are ahead of us. Lord, a crisis or a need that we we cannot perceive. Lord, we do pray that you keep this nation from just going headlong into a full assault against all that is right and true. Lord, we see even now, Lord, such a, a hateful, deceitful evil that presides over uh, governing rulers and, Lord, so many institutions in our land. I pray that you wouldn't help us, or that you would help us, Lord, to, to be courageous, that you would give us discernment, God, as we have to sometimes weigh between an act of mercy and kindness, or Lord, on the other hand, not wanting to compromise your word, compromise your holiness, your name that you have set upon us. Give us great wisdom and discernment. Lord, we do pray that you give us humility as we seek counsel with one another. And uh, we do even pray for situation, even for someone like Alistair Begg, Lord, a, a faithful expositor of your word in so many ways and for so many years. We pray that, Lord, that he not dig his heels in, but uh, would just humbly receive the counsel given to him and help us to be careful to, to judge, Lord, and, and uh, to condemn before first removing the, the log in our own eyes. And so we just look to you to help us, guide us, Guard us, Lord. Um, we do pray you give us compassion for the lost around us, those who are enslaved in sin. It's easy to, to turn the other way. It's easy to, Lord, justify uh, indifference. 
But Lord, we're able to, to reach out and to help. We're able to show kindness. Lord, would you give us uh, the strength to do that in the name of Christ, that your gospel might indeed go forth, Lord, and that others may come to find the forgiveness that we have in you alone, the hope that we have. Lord, guide us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's uh, turn then in our hymn books for a final song, 353. 353. And we'll close the line together. Oh, church, arise. Benediction from Gospel of John 16. Jesus speaking to his disciples says, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. And I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world 
John 16, 31. And just as we go, a few reminders, um, announcements that uh, counters today are uh, Steve Malcolm and Luke Telford. Um, I know Telford's sick kids today too, so maybe um, Stephen don't mind to help Stephen <laughs> count. Um, clean up today is the Cout family and Newfeld family. Wednesday night um, Bible study at 6.30. Try to finish the workbook for week six. And also, um, if you didn't notice the poster on the chat group, uh, we'll have an annual meeting on the 28th of February at 7 o'clock. And I did post the proposed agenda um, and budget and such. So make sure you write that on your calendars. Um, And today also, uh, the SDA folks are wanting to do some building maintenance around 2. So they asked if we could try to finish up around 2 o'clock and uh, and, and be up for them to do some, some work on the building. So um, just to be mindful of that, we won't have him sing today and try to get out as timely as we can. So um, next Sunday is also Lord's Supper being last Sunday of February, um, believe it or not. <laughs> so just be mindful of that. We'll have uh, Lord's Supper next week together. Anything else before we go, uh, announcement-wise, that I may have missed? Or... Well, then, maybe, Derwin, do you want to voice a prayer for our meals? Thank you. Dear Lord, we thank you for this day. Thank you for the sunshine today. We're going to pray that we can gather and worship you. And just for the message this morning, I just like to use Charlie Hart's name to guide our fellowships this afternoon. And thank you for the meal provided for us. Just go ahead and pray for each one of us this week. Thank you.